Susan, butcher box to the rescue. The other night we had some friends over for dinner and we had no idea what to make. And I was like, guess what? We have a freezer full of meat. So my husband went down and thought out some chicken from butcher box and made the best cocoa van that we've had in a long, long time. Yeah, you'd have been screwed without butcher box because I know you ain't got no time to go to the store right now. That's true. I don't have time to go shop for meat or pick out the meat or find the best quality, low-priced meat. So ButcherBox does all of that for me. So true story, my husband's workplace has a Slack channel called Smoked Meats. And I know you can't like win a workplace conversation, but he is now because with ButcherBox, his great cuts of meat to the door, they can cook up and take photos of for his workmates. <laughs> I love ButcherBox and I think other people would too. ButcherBox is the ultimate convenience, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, with curated, customized box plans. It's 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork, raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. There are a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive membership deals. They also provide recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. Sign up at butcherbox.com proof and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer, plus an additional 20% off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com proof and use code proof to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. The information that I am providing today is coming from higher dimensional Things got so weird during 2020, and it wasn't just the QAnon conspiracy theorists. This New Age channel told us Donald Trump is a massive and powerful lightworker. A lightworker? And then what about this Oprah-endorsed, best-selling feminist health icon talking about heavy metals that are in vaccines that make our bodies literally into an antenna with 5G? As we continued studying what we now call conspirituality, it only got more intense. This is, this is the cult of Baphomet. This is Molochite worshipping stuff it gets very gory in the basement and it culminated with that shaman dude showing up at the capital insurrection but it didn't stop there every week on conspirituality podcast we track the overlaps between new age spirituality and far-right conspiracy cults Hi, and welcome to this week's Sidebar, discussing episode 10 of our series on the case of Kane Story and Lee Clark. I'm here with Jacinda and Kevin, who are checking in from California. Hey, guys. Hey, Susan. Hey, Susan. So this week, we have some disappointing news to start off with. Um, we found out that the Attorney General's office in Georgia has decided to appeal in the Joey Watkins case. Now, Joey Watkins... Um, There's another Floyd County case we covered in season two of Undisclosed, and he had a hearing earlier this year, and the judge ruled in his favor, overturning his conviction. So we were waiting to see what the state did. The state could have chosen to do nothing, in which case Joey would have gone back to Floyd County and be up to them to decide what to do. Or the AG could, the Attorney General could decide to appeal it to the Supreme Court of Georgia, and that is ultimately what they have now decided to do. So we are disappointed primarily because of the time lost. Um, Joey's claims are very strong legally. I'm honestly a little surprised they appealed. Um, in most cases, you can assume that they're going to. But in this one, they just have such thin legal grounds that 
I managed to convince myself they might not do it. But they have, so we're now waiting probably six months, hopefully not too much longer, definitely end of the year, before um, Supreme Court of Georgia can rule on it and we find out if they uphold the trial court's ruling and keep his conviction overturned, or if somehow they decide to overturn it and reinstate his conviction. Now, does the Supreme Court have to tell you what points they're looking at or the basis of them looking at it? Right now, all we know is that there's a notice of appeal filed by the state. Um, we don't actually know what they're appealing on exactly. Um, the thing is, Joey won on three different grounds, and the state would have to win on all three in order for his conviction to be overturned. So they'll have to target all three of them and have to win on all three of them. And if they don't run the board, then Joey still wins. Oh, that's interesting. So even if they won on one conviction and not the other two, it would still be an overturn? It would. Any one of them standing alone is sufficient. Yeah. And um, he just, especially on this one claim in particular, that his legal arguments are just so solid that it'll be interesting to see. I'm glad I'm not writing that brief. I'll put it that way, <laughs> because I don't know what you'd write. Um, in the trial court brief after the hearing, the state's argument was that there was no evidence that the jurors had discussed the drive test one juror did, but then they had to recite the facts and mention that their own witness that they called to the stand was like, oh, yeah, I remember the, the drive test being discussed. I just don't recall if it was a man or a woman. <laughs> and so making the argument that it didn't happen when their own witness says it did, it's going to be a hard sell. What's the time frame for Joey in this whole process? Optimistically, I would hope for a ruling by like November, but, you know, the law being what it is, horrendously slow. It could push it to early 2023. Was there a deadline for them to file the paperwork? Saying yes. they were, so today, Thursday, the 11th was the deadline. And they filed um, last week. Could they have just filed it because they needed more time? Could they take back? It's not a very common thing that happens, but theoretically they could withdraw their appeal. Well, it's all very interesting. Have you spoken to Joey? How is he doing? I have. He's disappointed. He um, had his hopes up a lot because you can almost always assume the state will appeal a conviction being overturned. But he really was thinking, because we were all really thinking that they might not. So it was kind of a blow to go from having a bond hearing scheduled for next week to now knowing that he's still stuck there for six months more at least. Yeah. But again, after we get out of the Supreme Court, he goes to Floyd County, and it's up to Floyd County to decide what to do. They can choose to either let him go or to put him on trial again. Once you have a conviction in place, it's all but impossible to get overturned, and it takes years, if not a decade, to get there. Yeah, it's a long process. But in this week's episode, we heard about a defense's case at trial that was put on for both Lee Clark and Kane's story. Um, now, the fact that Lee and Kane were tried together was probably the whole ball game for Lee. What's interesting in the Joey Watkins case is that there were two defendants. Joey and his friend Mark were both charged. The theory was that like Mark was somehow in the car with Joey when the shooting supposedly occurred, even though there's no evidence that he was actually there. Hmm, sounds familiar. But in, in that case, Joey and his co-defendant Mark were got their trial severed. So they were not tried together. They each had their own trial and Mark was acquitted. The jury found him not guilty. So he went home. In this case, the motion for severance was denied. So Lee and Kane were tried together. And absent that, I just can't even imagine a conviction here for Lee, given the amount of evidence they had against him was so minimal. I mean, it's the whole concept of the conspiracy, right? You keep these guys together because they're in a conspiracy. Is that why it wasn't separated in your mind? 
It's same for Joey Watkins. That was a conspiracy between him and Mark. Again, they also made that one a, a gang case. They uh, they claimed that murder was because of a, uh, a gang of three people with no name. Again, a nameless gang did it, um, despite, again, no evidence. But here, I don't know why the ruling was different. I had, haven't seen the judge's ruling on it. Um, but the judge found that balancing the factors they look at, there was no reason to give Lee and Kane separate trials. We heard about Lee's defense, which... In terms of his case in chief, where he gets to call witnesses to the stand, it was very brief. He called Dr. Harvey Howell, who said that this is a contact wound based on his analysis of the photographs. And then they called two witnesses to talk about Lee's alibi from that night. Uh, to me, there's no real reason to doubt where Lee was that evening, because there were probably 10 people in all who saw him at his apartment at like a gathering they were having, drinking, being stupid. Apparently, someone lit some golden grain on fire and almost lit a table on fire, I've been told. <laughs> um, and this, this night sticks out in everyone's memory because the next morning they find out that Brian was killed. So there's no reason to doubt that Lee was there at some point that night. The problem is putting a time on it and figuring out exactly when this occurred because no one involved is really paying attention all that much to clocks. Right. Well, and we also know no one disputes. I mean, Lee admits it, Jamie admits it, and Kane that the three of them were together and driving around and they dropped Kane off at the Silver Creek Mini Mart. And Kane says from there, he walked, you know, behind the mini Martin up, up to where Brian lived. So, you know, Jamie and Lee would have been on their way back to Lee's apartment. Yeah. We don't know exactly how long it would have taken between when Kane was dropped off at the mini Mart um, and when Brian was ultimately shot, but it wouldn't have been terribly long, we don't think, from what we know. So it's hard to say. It's always stood out to me that no one interviewed Jamie, who was in the car, who would have been Lee's alibi witness. I know in the episode we talk about how he maybe isn't the greatest alibi witness because you know he's Lee's brother and could say whatever, um, but to not even interview him seems like a mistake. Especially since um, one part of the case that we're not going to cover in the show because it didn't go anywhere is there was a, a sort of troubled teen girl with a history of making false accusations against people who made a statement in this case. She talked to Dallas Maddell and David Stewart, and it was recorded, and she described in detail how Jamie was part of the murder conspiracy, and they had planned to kill Brian because of this narking thing and, like, you know, violating the gang rules and all that. And she's not used at trial because it's very apparent that her story can't be true because she says that this thing occurs. She, she has a very firm date. She's like, me and Jamie were on a date at the Coos Affair when he told me about how they killed Brian. And the Coos Affair was like two weeks before Brian's death. So they ultimately don't go there with that witness. They don't call her. They, they kind of just like let it go. But they have that statement. So you'd think they'd want to talk to Jamie to like find out more about his alleged involvement in it. And and Lee, they never really interviewed Lee either, right? Yeah, well, they did. So they did try to interview Lee, and Lee was like, "I'm not talking to you," which is the right answer. Everyone out there, <laughs> if you're ever brought into the police station, and the officer wants to talk to you about like, something that you're being suspected of, do it. Lee did. Don't talk. Um, but Jamie's like, he said, "I would have talked. I don't know why they didn't come to me." They never never tried though. We also heard this week about the witnesses called by the defense for Kane's story which included Caprice. Now, she was called by the prosecution as well. The prosecution puts her on the stand to talk to her about stuff. She cries the whole time. She denies being involved, obviously, and um, says it didn't happen. But the questions they ask her 
paint the picture for the jury that she's part of this conspiracy for some reason that's never explained. The prosecutor even says an opening. He's like, now Caprice was part of the conspiracy. Can I tell you why? No, I cannot. But she was. <laughs> so. Um, it really but, should. Yeah. He's like, why would she do this? Who knows? But she did. Um, that's not a direct quote, but it's very close to direct. He actually was very blatantly about, like, open about the fact that he cannot explain for the life of him why this teenage girl would help conspire to kill her boyfriend. But we also heard something interesting from Caprice that kind of struck me, which is that when we talked to her, she assumed, she she thought that Kane and Lee were guilty, um, which I kind of hadn't expected, I think, going into it. I remember her feeling like Lee was behind it all. She seemed a little more sympathetic towards Kane. Yeah, I'm sure that was part of it, but she thought that he was involved with it all. Yeah. Um, but she was like, yeah, so Lee was outside the window, right? And we're like, where'd you hear that? She's like, I assume, well, Dallas Battle, I'm pretty sure, told me. So she has a story in her mind of what happened. The Dallas Battle most likely told her about how Lee shot Brian through a window. And she never really questioned that, despite the fact that she knew she was also accused of being a conspirator and that she knows that she heard Brian say on the phone he was playing Russian roulette. She has, she, she heard all those years ago what Dallas Battle told her, and she's never really doubted that part of it. Yeah, I was surprised when she told us that as well. Even though she was being accused of being part of the conspiracy, she still believed what she was being told by the investigators. About Lee being seen there at the scene. Yep. We also heard her reaction to seeing Lee in the courtroom. And that was definitely not the only witness we've talked to who remembers describing, who remembers Lee being, um, having resting bitch face <laughs> throughout the proceedings. We're having a, like an angry, stern look on his face much of the time. Yeah, people talked about that a lot. And I always thought, it was, you know, it's interesting that people interpret it, that as as guilt or lack of remorse or whatever, versus just being like an angry 17, 18 year old because you're being tried for a murder that, you know, you say you didn't commit. Um, but that stuff matters, right? Like people's perceptions matter when you're dealing in a trial and, and a case. And, it does, but also when I see photos of them, part of me just doesn't understand it because the perception to me, how do you look at those two boys and think, oh yeah, these are hardened gang murderers? They look way younger than 17. Um, Lee's a, was a really small guy. Kane's tall, he's like 6'2", six, 6'3", six, but he's like stick thin. And Lee's kind of a small guy. Um, and they have baby faces to me. And there's nothing about them that would match this narrative being spun. But you know them and you know the story, right? And yeah, but even before I knew it, like I saw photos of them. I was like, really? These are the gang members here? <laughs> so after the conviction, uh, Lee actually kept his attorney for the the post the, the next legal proceedings, the next phase of it. Um, he had the same attorney for his appeal. He also had the same attorney for the motion for a new trial that was filed directly after um, the conviction. And the judge that oversaw the case ruled in the motion and what I thought was interesting, and the judge's ruling denying the motion for a new trial, um, he wrote the following about why Lee and Kane were convicted. The evidence shows that Story and Clark were members of a gang called the Freebirds, and that a short time before the shooting, Story, Clark, Bowling, and another young man committed the offense of burglarizing the home of Story's parents. A safe belonging to Story's father was stolen, and during the investigation, David Stewart interviewed Bowling, and he gave the police officer information which resulted in the arrest of Story and Clark. Now, if the judge sitting there through this trial drew that conclusion about the evidence being presented, you know the jury didn't have a hope because 
That is blatantly false. Brian Bowling was not part of the safe robbery, even though the judge came away thinking that. And by the time any allegation is made that Brian ever talked to anyone in law enforcement, all four boys involved in the safe theft had already been arrested and charged. There's no evidence that there was any information from Brian that would have helped in the case at all. And also they didn't need it because they had confessions from the people involved. And they also had Debbie Kelly, who saw the car pull up to the story's place that day. So Brian was like, Brian really couldn't have helped make a case against them. And again, not part of the safe robbery. And yet that's what the judge thought happened after watching over the trial. Do you think the defense attorneys thought the same thing? I wonder. Um, it does seem like no one really knew what was going on. They, they do eventually, at one point, the prosecutor figures out the mistake. And he's like, oh, yeah, Brian wasn't part of the safe theft. That's why he was so valuable as a witness. Because his opening statement's like, Brian was a crucial witness because he was part of the conspiracy. And he was going to testify against Leon Kane. And his closing is like, Brian was a crucial witness because he had nothing to do with the safe robbery. And therefore, he was an independent witness. And that's why he was so crucial. <laughs> so I guess it's heads, state wins, tails, defense loses. But the judge, I mean, if, if that's in the prosecutor's closing argument and for the judge to still make the mistake, does that seems like somebody wasn't paying attention. Yes, certainly there was a lack of attention paid by a lot of parties to this case. We also talked about Debbie Kelly again, the witness who lived next door to the stories. Um, she's also a cousin to the stories. But Debbie Kelly, she's crucial to the case because this whole theory about narkers having to die, that, that comes from her. It doesn't come from anyone else. But trying to interview her was really a struggle because she was just an extremely leadable witness. And that happens, you know, pretty often. But with her, I found myself struggling to formulate questions because anytime I said anything, she would adopt it into her answers. And it was making it difficult to get new information from her. New information and to confirm old statements as well. Yeah. Anything we asked her, she would basically adopt or spin off into a a new answer. Is it just an overwhelming like desire to please or to feel important? She keeps changing her story based on the question of the information provided. I think part of it for sure was just the natural tendency of any witness hearing about an old case when you have like fragments of memories you're trying to piece together. Um, that'll happen with anyone, but it was just especially pronounced in heart with her. I remember one time I misspoke asking a question and I said, Brian, when I meant to say Kane, and instead of her telling me the story about Kane that I was trying to get from her, she tells a new story involving the same facts. Only this time it involves Brian. Yeah. It was an interesting exchange with her that day. Let's say that. Yeah. She also told us about how. Weren't there something about bird feathers on their doorstep or something? Yes. Apparently, at some point back in when this was happening in 97 or 98, um, she came home and found bird feathers on her like entryway. And she called Battle and Stuart and they had to come like offer protection to her because she was convinced that it was the Freebirds gang leaving a calling card. She's an interesting interview, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and we also heard from the other witness who saw the, the notebook, Nancy Williams, who told us she did not remember testifying at the trial, which sounds unbelievable when you hear that. But I will say I have encountered that way more than I ever would have expected in working on old cases. It doesn't happen all the time, but like semi-frequently, I will speak to someone who testified at the trial like, you know, 20 
25 years ago, and they will just flat out insist they didn't testify. When they see their testimony, they're shocked because, yes, they did, but they've literally forgotten it. So it can and does happen. It just seems so impossible to sort of understand that. I mean, if one is an expert witness, you can understand that they may not remember testifying because they do it all the time. But presumably, she's never testified in another court case in her life. You know, we didn't ask her that, but I have spoken to witnesses who tell me, like, when I ask them, they're like, oh, that's impossible because I've never testified in any case ever. So I'm less skeptical now, having heard it several times from people who I'm confident aren't lying to me. Um, even though the first time I encountered it, I remember being just, like, blown away. I'm like, how could you possibly not remember testifying? Um, I didn't believe the witness. And then later on, I came to realize, like, it's probably true. He probably just forgot because um, it wasn't a big deal to him, you know? I think it's also possibly an indication that, like, what they're talking about at trial was not something that important to them. Uh, or in any event, it didn't leave a memory because outside of the testimony they gave, it didn't really create an impact in their long-term memories. Which could be the case for Nancy Williams because her memory now of this gang rule book it was very much tamer than it was when she was testifying at trial. Right. When we talked to her, she described it more as just like kids being kids kind of thing and not really anything scary or anything that she saw and was afraid of. Yeah. And her kids were like, oh, yeah, if, if mom was cleaning a house and saw something kind of interesting like that, she'd totally go through it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Kane says that it was just a song notebook. Um, I think he told me that like the actual title of it was Songs and Shit. Mm -hmm. uh, like like literally that was like written on it with the skull and crossbones. Um, he remembered some of the names of the songs, even. He remembered quite a few. I, I took some of them out, but like he was like telling me about like some of the love songs he wrote. I'm like, wow, that's. I so in my head, I was imagining that like maybe the songbook was like full of like violent rap lyrics, talking about drug use or something. But from everything I've heard from both Kane and others, it wasn't like that. Like it was just some like, you know, you know, grunge rock, but nothing in the lyrics themselves that would cause that kind of reaction from Debbie Kelly or Nancy Williams. So the big mystery is what happened to this book. We know it existed in some form because Kane says, yes, he had a book, a notebook of lyrics. But where is it? What happened to it? We just don't know. Ideally, I, I wish the stories would have been able to find it and have it. Then again, it was seven months after the shooting that there's any indication that the notebook's important and we don't know when the defense finds out. It probably was not even till much later on. So by the time Kane's reason to know that the notebook matters, probably at least a year. So it's, maybe he just misplaced it, got a new one, lost it, who knows? There was never a warrant to search his house to look for it or anything like that. No, there was not. Because they thought it was in the casket. So that's where they went to look for it. <laughs> it's this mythical piece of evidence that nobody but these other two have ever really seen, right? Yep. And, and it's used as this sort of, this big thing about this conspiracy, but it's never been produced. And as we heard in the episode, the jury should never have heard about it because it was hearsay and it was not um, admissible under any of the exceptions that they could have used. Like it shouldn't have been part of this case in the first place. Does that mean if there was ever a new trial because the judge made, the Supreme Court, I believe, made that ruling that the rule book would not be allowed to be evidence in a new trial? It'd be up to the trial court to rule on it again, but likely not given the Supreme Court's ruling on it before. And it becomes even more difficult to, to prove a conspiracy if you don't have this mythical rule book. Or if you don't have battles hearsay testimony about what Charlie supposedly saw. 
Susan, it's no secret that I have been taking Nutrafol and loving it for a few months now. Susan, have you gotten your Nutrafol yet? I finally did. I'm on the Nutrafol train and I'm really excited because not going to lie, my hair's been a hot mess this whole season. I think this season has impacted both of our hair in not great ways. Our sanity, our health, and definitely like, like ripping hair out in frustration sometimes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But thankfully, Nutrafol is there to help. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology. Take the hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code PROOF. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com. That's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com. Promo code PROOF. That's Nutrafol.com. Promo code PROOF. One thing we do a lot while investigating is sign up for newspapers. Local papers all over the country try and track down some scrap of info from, I don't know, the random 2007 edition of the Memphis paper, just for hypothetical example. <laughs> hypothetical. But the problem is we always forget to cancel those subscriptions. Luckily, there's a solution for people like us who sometimes lose track of things, and that's Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, you get full control over your subscriptions and a clear view of your expenses. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. That's amazing. That's, that's all I want in life is for someone to always deal with customer service for me. It's like having a personal assistant. Rocket Money has over 5 billion users and has saved them over $500 billion and saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash proof. That's rocketmoney.com slash proof. Rocketmoney.com slash proof. We also heard about the testimony that Kane gave at his own trial and how that negatively affected Lee Clark's defense as well. I mean, it's the one thing that, that points towards people thinking he was guilty, right? Like you've got, he's looking for who the narc is and you can place him at the mini mart 200 yards from the house. And that's the one thing that stands out as people conceivably thinking that Lee could be involved because you can place him in proximity and he's already upset that he's looking for a narc. So that's the smoking gun that the prosecution is trying to present, right? It seems like this is what actually started the investigation into Lee Clark. Why Lee and not someone else when there were supposedly other free birds, supposedly other people who would theoretically have an equal motive to do this based on the state's theory of the case. Like, why do they focus on Lee? And it's because they talked to Kane very early on and Kane tells them what he did that day. So they know he's with Lee Clark. One of the things that stood out for me about this episode is Lee's father, Glenn. And I think it becomes clear to the audience 
how difficult this whole process has been for him. And on the show, we, we keep looking at the evidence and it's compelling evidence. Um, I think that the emotion and the damage that we can hear sort of done to him in this episode really stood out for me. I mean, I remember when Jacinda and I shot that interview and I believe it was March of 2021. And um, seeing how much this story had, what had happened had, had sort of changed his life sitting there doing the interview it was very profound and uh and it brought back a lot of memories for me of watching him go through that explaining it to us and we were speaking to him as lee called him it was pretty it was a pretty intense moment yeah for 25 years he's been lee's primary contact with the outside world and he's wanted to get his son help but he just did not know what or how to do it he doesn't have the money to like hire attorneys and fight it to the end. Um, he doesn't know where to turn. And he wants to help his son, but he just literally doesn't know how to do it. Yeah. And in talking to us, I think he viewed this as an opportunity to finally get Lee's story out to the world, which is what he'd been looking for and what he told us he'd been praying for. We had a lot of great listener comments and questions this week. Um, we had one from at Marden Tur on Twitter who said, uh, one glaring problem I have with the state's theory is that if the murder was the plan, why wouldn't they both, Kane and Lee, have gone through the plywood bedroom window? Um, it was common practice among his friends and would have avoided all witnesses. Just one more thing that makes no sense with the theory. And in short, yes. To me, it's a simple thing, but also it's such a fundamentally hard thing to understand about the state's case. Like, why have Kane go through the front door? Why have Kane put on a scene like that? Um, and why does Kane agree to be the one who goes in the front door and is visibly known to be with the victim, whereas Lee is able to well, theoretically get away with no one sitting there at all, when they both just could have gone through the window if they'd wanted to? You know, I was thinking about this the other night, actually, about why did Kane go through the front door? when everyone says, you know, normally he would just go through the back window. And it made sense be to me because if he's walking from the mini mart, he's walking towards the house and he's gonna come to the front door first. If he's coming from his home, he would be coming towards the back of, of Brian's trailer where it'd make more sense to come through the window. The bowling family, you know, they remember it being odd that he came through the front door, um, but, because of the direction he was coming, I, I don't think it was, it was odd. But also, like, he was comfortable with the bowling family. Like, he would live with them for a bit after his father kicked him out because of the safe theft. So, I mean, it had been the place he was living for, like, two weeks there just before this all happened. So he was pretty comfortable coming and going there as he pleased. And, like, I remember thinking in this case when I started working on it, like, maybe Kane's acting weird or uncomfortable because he had, like, pistol in his pocket. But according to Brian's mother, like, he tells her. As he's coming in the door, he's got a pistol in his pocket and he's out target shooting before this. The thing that struck, I think, Kenneth and Amanda as odd, as I remember talking to them, was that he knocked on the door, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's not even that he came in the front door, it's that he knocked. Yeah. Like, that normally he would just walk in. But he could see in the window, because that's where Charles Pusley sees that later, and sees that there's company over. To me, it doesn't stand out that, that strange. And again, no one has a statement recorded right away. So we're dealing with statements that came months or even more than a year later on. 
But there's also like some suggestion that the knocking that was so weird to them was not the knocking on the front door, but the knocking on Brian's door. Because there's several people who recall him knocking on Brian's bedroom door after he came in. Brian asking, who is it? And Kane saying, it's me, buddy. And then Brian saying, come in. So it's not clear if the knocking was strange because it was on the front door or it was on Brian's bedroom door. Um, we also got a question from Minus Wit Humor on Twitter, who wrote that both the experts in the forensics episode mentioned burning from hot gases and that gunpowder could burn into the bone. Could that burnt bone still hold gunpowder chemical residue? Is exhumation possible? Well, whether exhumation is possible, uh, you'd have to go through the courts. I don't know how likely it is that anyone would win that motion. Kane has actually tried that before. He tried to move the court to have the body exhumed to check just that, and he was denied. So previously, that's gone nowhere. Um, but assuming an exhumation could occur, then actually, yeah, there's probably a pretty good chance that you could determine for certain if it was or was not a contact wound. Um, if it was a contact wound, there should be gunpowder and soot etched into the bone itself, which would still be, could still be determined and found. And we also had a question from Casey Williams on Instagram, and she asked, how exactly or why did they make an arrest on Lee Clark prior to Charlie's statement? Y'all mentioned he was already in custody when Charlie talked to police. That whole thing happened three days after Lee's and Kane's arrest. The arrest of Lee and Kane came after first the statements from Angela Bruce, who had the party where she says the boys confessed, and the statement from Debbie Kelly when she says the narc's rule book. Within a span of like four days, they talk to these witnesses and then they make the arrest right away. And it's only after that they talk to Charlie. So the arrest itself was based on the confession of the party and the gang rule book. We also got a question by email from Monique who asked, shouldn't it be a huge conflict of interest that the lady who cleaned the house and saw the notebook and went to testify was also working with police and interviewing Kane? It's not so much a conflict of interest because it wouldn't preclude her from testifying, but it's something that could have been used to impeach her and to undermine her credibility that the defense did not really utilize. Um, it's just a very strange situation all around as well. It's not clear how or why this arrangement was allowed to occur. All we know is that Debbie Kelly is apparently inserting herself into the case of the, the stolen safe and doing what she can to get that solved for David Stewart. We also had a few people write in to find out when and if we'll be hearing from Craig Burns. We will be hearing Craig Burns. Um, not this week, but I believe the week after that. What's on the next episode? Next episode, we are discussing the Freebirds and who or what they actually were. And we're also hearing from a witness that the police never talked to, which is Joseph Wilkins, who drew the weed eagle note found in Brian's casket. Thanks for listening to this episode of Proof Sidebar. If you have any questions for future Sidebar episodes, don't forget to send them our way through email, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. On all social media, we are Proof Crime Pod. You can find me on Twitter at the L2 and on Instagram at SOO Simp. And you can now find Jacinda on Instagram too, at Jacinda Proof. <laughs>